Hello and welcome to Bite Back Cat's Books. This week we're heading back in time to discover the story of one of the Second World War's most overlooked commanders, Shulter Douglas. Shulter was a pilot in World War I, head of fighter command in the RAF during World War II, and after the war he was military governor of Germany during the Nuremberg Trials. Here to talk more about his extraordinary life is Catherine Campbell, his daughter, whose book, Behold the Dark Grey Man, dives into Shulter's life and the PTSD he suffered as a result of it. Welcome. Catherine Campbell, welcome to the Virtual Bite Back podcast. Thank you. Well, thank you for coming on. Uh, we're here to chat about your book, Behold the Dark Grey Man, which is a look at the life of your father, Sholto Douglas, um, who served in both world wars and was, uh, I guess, afflicted in his older age by something that we would now describe as PTSD. Uh, so I wanted to know to start with why you decided to write the book. Well, um, in 2010, uh, which was the 70th anniversary of the Battle of Britain, um, I heard two historians on the TV, well, I saw them on the TV, talking about my father and his part in the Battle of Britain. Uh, and they said that he lacked imagination. And I thought, that's not the father I knew. Uh, because my father, for, certainly for me, was one of the most clever, imaginative people that I've ever met. So it made me think, well, who was this person? Because he died when I was 12. Uh, and I thought, I need to find out more. And, and I need to find out why he made errors that he did. Of course, in a world war, it, you know, it's impossible not for military officers not to make errors. It's, you know, it's the nature of war, of war basically. Uh, but I thought, was there something behind my father's decision making, basically, uh, which made him make errors of judgment? Uh, and so I started on my search and I found it, his life and and the lives of his parents, obviously, uh, and his siblings and everything around him and the history of the 20th century. So interesting that I thought, yeah, I do need to write about this. Yeah, it's almost like a kind of reacquainting yourself with your father, isn't it? The whole book yes. is a very an in-depth yes. look at his life and what influenced him. And yes. um, his life was fascinating, actually, reading through it. Yes. It, it seems almost impossible that so much could be crammed into, into, yes. into, one, into exactly. one lifespan. And yeah, I find it very interesting that it starts, the book opens with uh, your own memories of him and you realizing that perhaps your father was suffering from something that you couldn't quite understand or explain when did you become aware of that and how did this behavior manifest and then later on how did like when did you realize it was PTSD right well um it started I suppose the difficulty started with his strokes and the first one occurred when I was five years old in 1962 and um, he had a series of strokes after that um, and got progressively impaired, more impaired with each one, um, and just physically at first. But then he didn't actually retire from the chairmanship of BEA until 1964. And after that, things got worse because 
he started getting tearful and depressed. And I remember um, Churchill's funeral, watching Churchill's funeral with him in 1965 in January. And the tears were just pouring down his face. And it's something that I'll never forget. Um, and okay, the doctors said that, you know, dementia was probably what was setting in. But looking back on it, that's not quite what I saw. I didn't actually realize it was PTSD until decades later when I started researching his life. But even when I was a child, he displayed things like he was always very aware of danger. Uh, and now that would probably be called hypervigilance, which is part of PTSD. And then of course there was the tearfulness and the depression. And I think he also had flashbacks and he used to ruminate on the most disturbing parts of his life. And then later on, when if maybe three years, two, three years after his retirement, um, the, the nightmares and the sleepwalking started, which of course I witnessed. Um, and it just got more and more distressing. Uh, and, and he also used to have violent outbursts. I describe all of this very much in the first chapter of the book, but he used to have violent outbursts. And, and putting these things together, I realize now that all of this was, was this, these things were the symptoms of PTSD. Um, but obviously I didn't realize that at the time. And actually for somebody with dementia, he was remarkably lucid. And I quote uh, a letter that he wrote uh, to my mother in the last year of his life. And it actually doesn't sound like somebody with dementia at all. Um, I'm sure it did play into it. I'm sure there were bits where he lost his memory, but certain memories for him were very, very vivid. Uh, and they were the traumatic memories, of course. Yes, I can imagine. Um, was, was it a relief for you finding out, like putting the pieces together and realizing that what he had was, was PTSD? Or was it merely yeah, just- It was a relief. Mm. I felt really that everybody, when he was old and when he was displaying all these symptoms, I felt really that we all let him down including the doctors, because we didn't understand. I don't think my mother, she, she partially understood what was going on, but she wouldn't have called it PTSD, obviously, um, and because the term didn't exist at that point. Um, but I, I felt that people did not understand him. I felt in a way that we failed him. And so in a way, uh, going on this search and understanding what had happened to him in a way it was it's too late for him but in a way it was putting it right yeah definitely I think that's what the book really does show it is a very kind of it is an intimate and very like in-depth look at your father and um but I don't think having read about Sholto's life that it is a surprise that he eventually did end up suffering from PTSD yeah. because by all accounts it was a very colorful life it so. was <laughs> Absolutely full on. Um, yeah. So taking it right back to the start then, um, how did his his childhood and his relationship with his father affect the kind of person he became? Because his, his father was was quite a character and I can imagine that his 
treatment of the family would have been quite damaging for, for, for the entire oh, family. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. Well, um, on the outside, I suppose in a way, uh, my father's life started quite conventionally. If you looked at it on the surface, his father was a Church of England vicar, albeit an unwilling one. And uh, he'd married his mother because she was actually um, uh, a member of his congregation in South London. And um, he married her because she looked like a Verrocchio Madonna. <laughs> uh, he, his interest, it's not a great reason entirely to marry someone. But I also think that um, my father's attachment to my grandfather was always fragile. Uh, because my grandfather started having affairs from quite early on in the marriage and um, the, the marriage to the Verrocchio Madonna actually wasn't very happy. Uh, and um, when my grandfather deserted the family, when my father was six and um, his little brothers were five and three, um, it really was quite a complete desertion because he went to Australia. So my father and his mother and his two little brothers were sort of catapulted into extreme poverty. I mean, Church of England vicars didn't earn a lot anyway, but uh, when the father left, they lost their means of support. And uh, so they went to live with his mother's parents in, in South London. And uh, my father told me when I was a child that at times they were so poor that there were no shoes for the boy's feet. Wow. And uh, he used to take his little brothers barefoot uh, on omnibus trips around London. And they used to jump on and off the buses, but in bare feet. And you know, that is quite an extreme thing. Mm. Although I've been told that because shoes were very expensive at that time, uh, actually quite a few families couldn't afford shoes for their children's feet um, but you know it was extreme and even when the my grandfather his father started to make money um, from his art dealing there was never that much money uh, and and my father describes even he was very clever he got into Oxford and he got a scholarship but even then he was always short of money uh, and that obviously affected him for the rest of his life. It, it, you can't have experiences like that as a child and for them not to affect you, basically. It, he was, he, the, the thought of the lack of money was always in the back of his mind. Yeah, no, that definitely makes sense. And then from Oxford, as you mentioned, he got a scholarship and then in 1914, World War One started and then began his kind of meteoric rise through the ranks, as it were. So can you talk to me a little bit about, it is like a massive subject, but his journey through the World Wars, like how did he rise through the ranks of, you know, he wasn't even in the RAF, he was in its predecessor, the RFC. Yeah. So so he's been, he was with it right from the start. Like how, what was his experience like um, as a pilot? Well, um, he started off actually in the Royal Horse Artillery. Uh, and um, he was always a person who stood out in a crowd, basically. He was clever, he was quick-witted, um, he was a maverick, really, because of his socialist beliefs. You know, he, 
he became a socialist at quite a young age, very young age, uh, in his teens. Uh, and that was unusual in mm. the armed forces at that time. And what I think it did for him was that um, it made him question his superiors all the time. So he ran into problems, you know, and he ran into problems with his first commanding officer in the Royal Horse Artillery um, because he kept questioning, well, is this the right thing to be doing? You know, what kind of armament should be, we be using for trench warfare? Are we using the best thing? All of that kind of thing. And his commanding officer thought, whoa, you know, this is not for someone like you to question. So he volunteered for the RFC. And um, a few days after his 21st birthday, he rode, and I describe this in the book, but he rode his charger, his black charger called Tommy, across the fields of Northern France with his groom to join his squadron, number two squadron, which was based at Merville, an aerodrome in Northern France. And I think quite early on, his superiors could see what he was made of. He was a very determined person. And as I say, very clever. Uh, and he was a leader. And that those leadership qualities, I think there again, I think they stemmed from his childhood really, because after his father left, he had to take a leading role in the family. He was the eldest, but he was only six. But I think he tried to look after his mother and his little brothers. He, and he was also a good pilot. He became a very good pilot. Uh, he didn't get the greatest scores. You know, he wasn't a person who had a lot of kills in the mm. First World War, because actually I think, and this is ironic for a military leader, he didn't like killing people. He loved aviation. He took to flying like a duck to water, but he, he didn't like killing people, but he liked commanding squadrons, etc. And then in World War II, he was in high command for the whole, almost the whole of World War II and into the aftermath. And there again, I think people could see his qualities, although he was a difficult person to deal with in some respects. But, but those under him, the, the lower ranks, the junior officers and the lower ranks, always absolutely loved him. But I think his superiors always found him somewhat tricky. I guess like you have to be as a leader almost, don't you, uh, to make those yeah. difficult decisions. And I know yeah. that in the book, leadership does seem to weigh quite heavily on Sholto. There are some quite, there are reports of these very affecting letters that he wrote um, as a major and, you know, later on to people yes. whose, yeah. you know, families who's, of pilots who had died saying, I'm very sorry, yeah. you know, I'm yeah. sorry for your loss. So that must have affected him quite a lot just being in that leadership position but I was wondering also there's um his brother Archie died in quite horrible circumstances as mm. well how did that affect him oh it definitely affected him for the whole of his life mm. you know the photograph of his brothers because his his brother Bobby died prematurely as well uh, between the wars but Archie and Bobby were the photos were on his desk till the end of his life. Um, and he was particularly fond of Archie. He really had a close relationship with him. And um, his mother 
um, blamed him for Archie's death, which is a terrible thing, really. It weighed, that really weighed on him for the whole of his life. And it affected all of his decision-making. You know, it was there every time he sent young men out on patrol as a squadron commander in World War One, and then in high command in World War Two. I think he felt those losses deeply, but he sort of covered it up with this tough carapace that he developed. And it was there in his decision-making because in World War I, he championed large formations because he thought they were safer. Um, and he drummed it into his pilots. I remember reading a transcript of an interview with one of his pilots from the RAF Museum. And uh, he was in 43 Squadron in 1917, this guy, and my father was commanding 43 Squadron. And uh, this guy said in the interview that uh, my father had said to him, if you don't keep formation, you will be shot down and you will be killed. Mm. And when you think that Archie was just with one other aircraft when he was shot down, I think that was in my father's mind for the rest of his life. And of course, it involved him in huge controversy in World War II because there was the whole debate about the big wing, which is what people always remember about my father, unfortunately. And he championed the big wing, but I think he championed the big wing because at the back of his mind was Archie's death and his fears about losses. Just um, to clarify quickly, can you explain a little bit about what the Big Wing is for those who are less um, versed in history? Okay, so there were two opposing schools, if you will, on tactics to be used in the Battle of Britain. The Commander-in-Chief of Fighter Command and the Air Officer Commanding Number 11 Group, so that is uh, Dowding and Park, Mm. favoured using pairs of squadrons when the, the German bombers came over because they found that those pairs of squadrons could be mobilised more quickly and were more flexible and could engage the enemy aircraft before they bombed their targets. So that would be aircraft factories, aerodromes, cities, whatever. So what they were interested in was mobility. How could you most quickly engage the enemy and stop him doing what he was doing? And their tactics were very effective. But my father, but actually principally the Air Officer Commanding Number 12 Group, Trafford Lee Mallory, egged on by Douglas Bader, you know, who was a very famous um, aviator, they championed the big wing. So this is formations of three or four squadrons, uh, lots of aircraft, you know, 90 aircraft perhaps, uh, forming up into a big wing. And so that the, the huge masses of German bombers were met with an almost equal number of uh, allied aircraft, of British aircraft. But the problem with that was the time that it took for the big wing to form up, uh, it took a long time to get those numbers of aircraft into formation and then they could not all, all operate on the same radio frequency. 
so what was the point if the squadrons couldn't talk to each other? And so it was very cumbersome. And in fact, an analysis, and I give a little analysis in the book I put a table in, an analysis shows actually that the big wing was not very effective in, in engaging the enemy because of the time it took, the bombers, the German bombers were already here by the time the wing was still forming up. Uh, and so it, it got into a really vicious argument. And my father, unfortunately, got onto the side of Lee Mallory and Bada because Lee Mallory phoned him up every day and sort of, you know, bent his ear with all his misgivings about how the battle was going and how the big wing was better all of that kind of thing. And, and that is what historians have remembered, unfortunately. But then your, you know, controversy or not, the Battle of Britain was eventually won. And I think some of the most interesting stuff in Behold the Dark Grey Man is the role that Scholte played in post-war Germany. So yeah. he refused to attend the Nuremberg trials, which I found very interesting because it was such a huge thing. And yeah. um, so what did he do instead uh, in Germany? And then how did this affect him? Right, well, first of all, he went out to Germany. I, I've just got to add something here. Mm -hmm. And that is that throughout the war, he had three commands. He had fighter command, he had Middle East command, and he had coastal command. And what is quite clear, and I think I show this in the book, is that he learned from his mistakes. And by the time he got to coastal command, he, at the end of the war, he from 1944 onwards, um, he was really at the top of his game. So throughout World War II, and this is the backdrop in a way to post-war Germany, throughout World War II, my father learned his lessons, basically. Mm. Uh, and then in post-war Germany, first of all, he went out as C&C of the British Air Forces of Occupation. And their job was to dismantle the Luftwaffe. And he did that for a few months. And then uh, Monty, uh, who was at that time military governor of the British zone and commander of the British forces in, in that zone, he was due to come back to England, to the UK, uh, to be chief of the Imperial General Staff. And my father thought, oh, you know, I'm just going to do my stint of CNC Baffo and then I'm going back home. And Monty said to him, no, you're not. You're coming back here as military governor. And my father actually said, like hell I am. <laughs> and Monty said, yes, you are, because I recommended you for the post and you have to do your duty. And uh, my father didn't want the post of military governor, uh, but at, he, he said, all right, if I do that, then I have to have some leave because I am absolutely washed out because I've been in high command all the way through the war and CNC Baffo, and I am tired out. And um, so he came back to England on leave, my father did, and Attlee asked to see him in 10 Downing Street. And Attlee persuaded him in that very quiet way that Attlee had. He didn't attempt to harangue him. He just said to him, you ought to do this job. Mm. And in fact, there was a paper actually that my father wrote towards the end of his time as C&C Baffo that 
no doubt demonstrated to people, civil servants and others, that he had a real understanding of what was going on in Germany, even before he took over as military governor. And it was absolutely desperate. We have forgotten in this country, our memories are very, very short. And especially in this time of Brexit, we have forgotten the absolute catastrophe that was post-war Germany mm. and how key people from the UK, and my father played his part in this, key people had to put, and, and from the rest of Europe, had to put Germany back together again. And that, you know, there were, I suppose, it was a threefold thing in as military governor in post-war Germany. The first was to address the desperate food for fuel and housing shortages in post-war Germany. There were people living in cellars, bunkers, eking out miserable existences, absolutely starving, cold, there was no fuel. They couldn't get the factories going. You know, all of that. It was a complete catastrophe. So my father, he was deeply, deeply disturbed by what he saw. It was dreadful. And when he made those visits to places like Hamburg and Dusseldorf, he was really disturbed by what he saw. And he fired off letters endlessly. We have to sort this out. So that was that. Then there were the Nuremberg trials and my father didn't attend uh, because he felt that since he had to hear the pleas for clemency, and again, most people have forgotten that there even were pleas for clemency from the major Nazi war criminals, not all of them, but just some of them, there were pleas for clemency. And he felt that since he had that responsibility with the other three military governors of the three other zones, uh, he should not attend the trials. He should just read those pleas for clemency straight and make up his own mind. And so that's what he did. Um, and in fact, he did not lessen the sentences of any of them. Uh, you know, they... they were they received either the death sentence or 15, 10 or 20 years imprisonment and or, or life imprisonment. But he didn't lessen their sentences because he felt he couldn't. But what's interesting about the Nuremberg trial documents, and I describe this in the book again, is that he wrote all over them in red pencil. So you can see his thought process when he was thinking about the pleas for clemency big red pencil or blue pencil all over them. So he really took his responsibilities seriously. Uh, and then finally, there were the uh, proceedings of the military courts in the British zone. Uh, and there again, there were lots of death sentences. There were lots of them. And I, I, again, I describe this in the book that every few days, every couple of days, these files, these grim buff folders used to land on his desk. And in it, in them were the stories, often tragic stories of people who had looted, murdered, whatever, quite often displaced persons because they were 
forced into Germany uh, as slave labor by the Nazis. They had lost absolutely everything. And now because of the crimes they had committed, they were up for the death penalty. Uh, and, you know, my father, there was the death warrant. You know, there was the form, which if he signed, it meant the end of somebody's life. And, you know, these were desperate people. Um, and it was the thing that he recalled over and over again um, in his old age. And I have to say that the first time I got almost all the death warrants that my father signed and oh. from the National Archives, they are there. And the first time I saw my, uh, my father's signature on a death warrant, I gasped. You know, I was sitting in the reading room of the National Archives and I just thought, oh, this is awful. And in the next 30 seconds, I felt all the horror, revulsion, disgust, shame, all the emotions that my father must have felt sort of went through me in those 30 seconds. And I thought, this is an awful thing. And he came out of that whole experience firmly against the death penalty. It is harrowing stuff and it isn't a surprise that, although it's, it must be quite incredible to think that your father played such a seminal role in such a massive moment in history, it's not a surprise yes. that these things came back to haunt shorter and later life. And I know you said that yeah. the onset of all this, like a lot of his PSD, PTSD um, was having a stroke and the onset of dementia, perhaps also his retirement. You did say that he died when you were quite young. So I was wondering when you started to research PTSD in a bit more detail, how did your research change the way that you saw your father, kind of your relationship with him? It, it gave me, I mean, I'd always loved my father very much because when I was a child, he was a very good father. Um, despite his age, he was 63 when I was born, which again is quite an extraordinary thing. <laughs> um, but it made me have so much more compassion for him because like you said, his life was absolutely crammed full. I, it's hard to see how somebody had crammed so much into their life. And when I, I, I my search, I, again, I described that in the book that I started because I was a, a neuroscientist and I worked, I actually worked on infant pain, but also I knew about adult pain uh, and in particular psychological pain. I started with psychological pain because I thought, well, obviously, in many ways, my father's life was very painful. There was a big burden that he was carrying. And I started looking at psychological pain and I consulted former colleagues at University College London and at the University of Leeds, and they were very, very helpful. Um, but when I looked um, in the textbook of pain, I saw a short description of PTSD. And I thought, actually, I think this is what my father had. And it was a sort of aha moment. And I looked at that description and begun a new literature search. And as I pieced his life together, as I looked at all the documents, and I've actually looked at thousands of documents and read hundreds of books, his whole 
character from his childhood came out for me. And I just, I, as I said, I had enormous compassion for him. I'm amazed at how he managed to carry the burden for the whole of his life until he could no longer suppress its consequences. He just pushed it down into his unconscious and got on with life. It's not necessarily the best thing to do because as we see, you know, what happened when he, he was old, it was extremely distressing to watch because he deteriorated physically and psychologically. But the thing to remember is that PTSD is not just a psychological or mental illness. It causes severe physiological dysregulation if it's allowed to become established as it did in my father's case. It wasn't just a mental illness, it was a physical illness as well. And I just had enormous admiration for my father. And I find with myself that I'm much clearer about who I am and where I come from after having written this book. Yes, absolutely. And although there is so much more we could talk about, um, I think that's quite a nice place to wrap up the podcast. And so my last question to you would be, what's one thing you hope readers will take away from reading Behold the Dark Grey Man? Right, well, the, the most important thing mm -hmm. is that PTSD can happen to anybody, no matter how brave they are or how high up the ladder they've climbed. And it's up to us, actually, maybe it's we ourselves or maybe it's someone we know, it's up to us to encourage people who we think are suffering from that condition to come forward without fear of stigma or prejudice. But unfortunately, stigma and prejudice, prejudice and discrimination are alive and well in the UK today, unfortunately. So we have to work hard to reduce that because what we've got to do is we've got to stop people becoming emotional and physical wrecks as a result of the consequences of PTSD. That's really the point. Yes, absolutely. Uh, well, Catherine, thank you so much for taking the time to chat today. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another Bike Back podcast. If hearing Catherine talk about her father as Peter interest in Shelter's life, then why not head over to bikebackpublishing.com to pick up a copy of her book, Behold the Dark Grey Man. It's out now and available from all good bookstores. And don't forget to like and subscribe. Until next time.